Let's pray. Father God, as we step into your word, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, tender hearts to receive this word. Uh, God, whatever I say that doesn't reflect your heart, your words for this church, just let that be chaff and just blow away. Uh, But Lord, let your word land with significance and weight this morning. Let us hear your call clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 is where we'll start in a moment. Uh, I remember very well, well, I shared this story with a friend uh, earlier this week. Uh, I remember well uh, when our first daughter, Emma, was born. Leading up to those moments, we had, had, Melissa had done all the reading, and I had a stack of books that I was supposed to read and hadn't read. And uh, we had been to you know, birthing classes and, and, and done all of those things. And then her mom, Melissa's mom, uh, said, I'm going to come stay with you guys for two weeks after the baby's born to help out. Now, I love my in-laws. They are godly, wonderful people. But two weeks with anyone, can, that's a long, that can be a long time. And so I thought, uh, well, I'm, that's nice. What's the big deal? We're going to be Okay. Uh, it's, maybe she'll find out that we've got it under control and she'll leave early. And so when those two weeks were up and she carried her suitcase out of our front door, Melissa and I both stood there and cried and thought, how could you do this? How could you leave us with this human being? We're not even old enough to rent a car. How can we raise a child? And, uh, and it was traumatic. It's been traumatic every day since then. <laughs> Increasing degrees. But, uh, man, I, I just, I did not anticipate. This is how stupid I was, I am. I just didn't anticipate how radically everything in our lives would change uh, for the foreseeable future. And I welcome that. I'm glad for it. But it's just a total reorientation of life. And we've all been through, I think, similar situations, not necessarily the birth of a child, but other situations where everything gets turned upside down. Everything's changed. There's something new on the scene. And we've got to adjust ourselves to that thing. Uh, we sang a couple of Christmas songs this morning. And it's because what Mark gives us in our passage this morning are the implications of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is here. And nothing will ever be the same. Everything is turned upside down. What God is doing, God the Father is doing through God the Son is a pivotal moment in history and everything is different from here on out. Now Mark doesn't give us shepherds, angel choirs, doesn't give us magi from the east. No no one has a Mark nativity scene they set up. If you did, it might just be a baptism scene or it might be this scene from verses 14 to 20 where Jesus announces his entrance and then begins to impact lives as a result. And so you're going to hear Jesus this morning put a call on some people's lives to follow him You've got to be ready for that same call to land on your heart and your life today. 
We don't read this passage just about other people or just about ancient people. It's like we're standing with Jesus and he is speaking to us eye to eye. And he's going to tell you, follow me. And it's a decision point today. And so my intention with this passage is I want you to understand. Our thinking needs to be shaped around the reality that Jesus has come to us. God is with us in the person of Jesus. And we need to understand the implications of that reality on our lives. I want to share with you two things that the coming of Jesus Christ means for us. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 1. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, um, we've heard the message of John the Baptist and seeing his unique role as the prophet preparing people for the Messiah. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus baptized, and in that scene, the triune God is present, Son being baptized, Spirit descending, Father speaking. Jesus declared Son, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness, faces off with Satan, and declares war. And now we pick up in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus is here, and it means something. Let me share with you these two things. First of all, the coming of Jesus Christ is an invasion into a broken world. It is an invasion, an inbreaking into a broken world. Verses 14 and 15 give us the arrival of Jesus, the the beginning of his public ministry, and his proclamation uh, to the world around him. So we've got some necessary details in verse 14. Mark tells us that John was put in prison. We might want more details than that. Why was he put in prison? Who put him in prison? Where was the prison? How long will he be in prison? We want to know all the details around that. Mark's not interested in that for this narrative. He wants you, the reader, to know this. There's a shift in focus. It was John, and now the focus is on Jesus. John is in prison, and Jesus goes into Galilee. Galilee is where the majority of Jesus' ministry takes place in the Gospel of Mark. If you're not familiar with this ancient geography, um, think of it this way. The, the, the capital city, so to speak, would be Jerusalem. It's in the county of Judea. Just north of that is the county of Samaria. Just north of that is the county, again, I use that term loosely, of Galilee. And so here's Jesus in this region, Galilee, where he does so much of his ministry, and it gets called out in multiple places uh, in our passage from here and moving forward. So Jesus, in Galilee, begins to preach this message. Look at it in verse 15. The time has come. 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I want us to take this sermon of Jesus phrase by phrase. It's a brief sermon, isn't it? You'd say, Cody, you could learn something from Jesus, and you would be right. Jesus says, the time has come. I think we can understand that phrase from three different points of view. First of all, Mark links John's arrest with the inauguration of this public ministry of Jesus, the inauguration of the preaching of the gospel. So in other words, the time of John the prophet is over. That's not to make little of John, but look, John's got to decrease so Jesus can increase. So the time of John the prophet is over, and it's the time of Jesus and fulfillment now. It's a new era in God's redemptive history. We might say it's gospel time. Another way we might look at it is that the coming of Jesus fulfills God's plan for the grand sweep of history. God has planned for this particular moment all along. And suddenly it it comes to fruition in this specific time, in this specific place, in this specific person. Every promise made up to now is fulfilled in this moment with the arrival of King Jesus the Messiah. With those promises comes the blessing of God breaking into his world, salvation coming in the person of Jesus We might say it's not only gospel time, it's blessing time. The time has come. Another way we might think about it is this. Mark ties the the turning point in redemptive history to the preaching of Jesus. Jesus is here and he is proclaiming this message. So when the good news of God is preached, that means it is decision time. He's here to call men and women to himself. He's here to change lives. He's here to turn the old order of things upside down. The time has come. The next phrase Jesus says is, the kingdom of God is near. Now, I'm afraid, maybe, that when we hear this line, the kingdom of God is near, the image we have in our head is of some wide-eyed, wild-haired, zealot, wearing a sandwich board in some heavily populated downtown area, screaming at traffic. And if, if that's the case, we, we need to take our bias and set it aside. We need to hear Jesus for what he says. He's announcing good news, after all. The kingdom of God is near. That's, that's good news. So how do we define kingdom of God? What is Jesus saying to us when he says the kingdom of God is near? Well, We've got to understand the kingdom of God. This is a huge concept in the Gospels, a tremendous concept in all of the New Testament, all of Scripture, uh, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is not property. It's not a land with boundaries, clearly defined borders. The, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with geography, has nothing to do with politics, The kingdom of God has to do with God's reign in and over the lives of people. So a a simple definition could be this. The kingdom of God is both the present spiritual reign of God and the future realm over which he will rule in power and glory. 
There's a present tense application of the kingdom of God. There's a future application. Present tense, it's his spiritual reign. Future tense, it's the realm over which he rules in power and glory for all eternity. So again, the kingdom of God is not about land, it's about lordship. It's about the reign of Christ in our lives. And what is it that makes verse 15, the time of verse 15, so unique that Jesus can declare the kingdom of God is near? Why hasn't that statement been made before by others? Why hasn't that been the rallying call for God's people for all this time? The reason it can only be preached here and now and moving forward from verse 15 is because Jesus is here. He's the one that brings the kingdom of God near. He's the one that establishes the reign and the rule of God in our lives now and forevermore. With the presence of Jesus, we are seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom is known and seen wherever Christ is acknowledged, wherever people are saved, where his enemies are put down, where his ways are obeyed. That's where the kingdom of God is. Exists. The kingdom of God is near since Jesus is present. With the appearance of Jesus, the Messiah King. He's the King of the kingdom. Now the kingdom is drawn near in Him. And in the presence of this King, people are confronted head on with the reign of God. His appearance is the decisive event in the redemptive plan of God. Upon facing Jesus, we face a decision. How is it then that today, 2,000-something years later, we can say the kingdom of God is near still? I want you to think in a very practical sense. Jesus said the kingdom of God is near because he's there in Mark chapter 1. Since then, he's been crucified rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. So how can the church today rightly say the kingdom of God is near rather than was near or might be near again? How can we say the kingdom of God is near? Here's how we're able to say it. In in Galilee, Jesus was present in the flesh, but for us, Jesus is present in the word of proclamation Wherever the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed, there is the presence of Christ and the reign of Christ. And so we prayed this morning for First Baptist Weymouth that the kingdom of God would be present in the preaching of the gospel in that place and in the proclamation of the lives of her members. And it's the same thing we pray for our church as well. I can say to you today, the kingdom of God is near because the word of Christ is given to you. It's a pivotal moment for every person who hears this word. You see, to hear the news of the coming of the kingdom is to call for a response. And Jesus tells us in his message what the right responses are to this news. What are the responses? First, the right response is repent. The kingdom of God is near repent. That call to repent is not a new message. 
The prophets have preached this before Jesus. And this was also John's message, right? But there's a new sense of urgency since Jesus has arrived. There's no time for men to delay. No time to put it off and think about it for another day. This is the decisive moment. Jesus calls everyone who hears his voice to turn around, to turn away from our sinful pursuits and to reorient our lives towards him for our salvation, our forgiveness, and every day that we live and breathe that we would live our lives in pursuit of him. He calls us to repent. He also calls us to believe the good news. Repentance is incomplete by itself. If I repent, but I don't believe, one, we would question the validity of the repentance. Two, all I'm doing is making some sort of moral case for myself before God. If I don't believe in the one who came and died, who gave me his righteousness, but if I turn to follow him in some sort of ethical, moral way only, without belief, I'm damned. No hope in myself. I won't get credit for my morality or my ethics. So from the outset, to hear the message of Jesus Christ is to be confronted with this reality. Jesus calls me and he calls you to turn our lives to him and to believe. And brother and sister Christian, before we think this is just a call to those who are outside the faith, you need to recognize that this response of repentance and belief is to mark the life of every believer every day we walk with Jesus. It's not that every day we have to be saved again, but repentance is not a one-time event. Repentance is an ongoing, lifelong turning towards Jesus Christ. Belief is not a one-time moment at some teary altar call in a, in a feverish prayer. Belief happens every day. With every crisis, every challenge, every victory, believer, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. What Jesus says in verse 15 is not just for those on the outside, it's for you and I here as well. Especially if we consider Mark's original audience. Who's Mark writing to? He's writing to believers. He wants the church to hear the gospel and turn to Christ and believe on Christ again and again. Jesus has invaded this broken world and he brings good news that the old power structures have a shelf life. That the brokenness that previously defined our lives is going to be healed up. And we are not long for this little blue marble. But there is a kingdom. A kingdom that we are meant to populate. Another country that we belong to. That kingdom of God is present in our lives as we walk with Christ. And one day we will see that. It will take on spatial qualities for us. It will one day have some boundaries and borders. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And at that time, we'll see the kingdom face to face in all of its glory. It'll be amazing. Jesus invades this broken world to bring hope, to bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring judgment, to fix what's broken once and for all. It's another way we need to think about Christ's coming to us the coming of Jesus is an invasion in this broken world. Second, the coming of Jesus Christ is an invitation to broken people. It's an invitation to broken people. I love that 
Mark has put these scenes together. One, the scene of Jesus preaching the kingdom. And then two, Jesus calling the disciples to himself. Now, this, these are just the first of the disciples that Jesus extends his call to. This is not, uh, it'll, it'll be chapter 3 before we get the roll call of the 12. And then chapter 6, Jesus sends them out in ministry. So we just get the first four here, two sets of brothers. And uh, the two accounts are almost perfectly parallel in their telling. You could take the, each line of each account and match it up to each other. Uh, Mark gives us the location where Jesus finds them. He, he gives us their names. We've got Simon and Andrew, James and John. We're told what they're doing. Simon and Andrew are in the boat uh, with their nets, or they're, they're with the nets on the sea. Um, James and John are mending their nets, getting ready to go out. And then Jesus calls them to follow. Jesus is the only one with the speaking part in these two scenes. And he speaks to Simon and Andrew, and he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Mark doesn't record Jesus as speaking to James and John, but obviously he does. We're told he calls them to follow him, and, and they, they do so. I've always been intrigued by the phrase, I'll make you fishers of men. I, th- I thought it was just Jesus being clever. Right? Like he, it's, he can turn anything into a sermon, right? That, that's kind of how I approached it. But I've learned recently that this isn't just a clever Jesus. This phrase, I'll make you fishers of men, actually has some deep Old Testament roots to it. In the Old Testament, there's only one fisher of men, and that is God. And that phrase is used as a term of judgment. It's a heavy term. So listen from Jeremiah chapter 16. God says, I'm about to send for many fishermen. This is the Lord's declaration. And they will fish for them. I will first repay them double for their guilt and sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the lifelessness of their detestable and abhorrent idols. So the language is used by the prophet Jeremiah, also by Ezekiel and Amos, to describe God's coming judgment. It's pretty graphic in a few places as well, this fisher of men language. So when Jesus says to these four men, I'll make you fishers of men, it's, it's not that they themselves will bring the judgment. Rather, with the gospel of the kingdom, they will be saving out of the wrath of God, the just and righteous wrath of God on sin. They will be saving people for the Messiah's kingdom. To be a fisher of men is to work urgently in the face of a coming judgment that's right and true And with the gospel rescuing people, that's the net. The gospel is the net that rescues people for God. So what is it that persuades these four guys to follow Jesus? It's not Jesus' credentials, right? Mark doesn't tell us that there's any previous relationship. Maybe there was. We don't know. We don't know that Jesus is traveling with his resume in hand or a business card or that he gives some sort of spiel before. We just know Jesus shows up and makes the call. And what seems to be persuasive in this moment is not what Jesus says about himself, but what he says he will make of these men. It's his prophetic vision of their life 
To which they respond and say, yes, I'll make you fishers of men if you follow me. They leave everything behind, they take up, and they go with Jesus. Have you ever considered what Jesus would do with your life if you said yes to him? Well, you have, you have no idea, no idea the plans God has for you, plans that are glorious and beautiful, and the way he will shape you and change you as you walk with him, you have no idea. Now, in Mark's gospel account here, this is, again, Jesus' first encounter that we know of with these four men, no prior contact. Jesus gets all the speaking parts. He calls, they follow. We're not told whether these guys were disgruntled with their jobs and maybe that's what motivated them. We're not told whether they were prosperous or poor. We don't know how the the brothers all got along. Maybe Simon and Andrew were BFF and so then that, that prompted them to want to follow. We're not told that though. We're not told what Zebedee's relationship with his two sons are like. We've got no information there to help us. You know what? We're not even told what the weather was like the day that Jesus came to them. But the absence of all these extra details pushes us to remember the primary interest of the gospel writer. That is the authority of Jesus and the response of the disciples. Jesus calls, they follow. That's the message to the reader. He shows up to these four ordinary men who are engaged in routine activities. They're not in the temple. They're not sons of priests. They're not part of some Messiah watch party. They're just men about their business. It tells me that this is a grace call. Jesus calls these men whom others perhaps wouldn't have chosen to call and follow him. And they do so. And it was a radical call for these fishermen. Have you ever stopped to think, well, what does it mean that they left everything and followed him? So many details that Mark leaves out of this story, but something he's incredibly detailed about are the things they left behind. Nets, boats, fish, a father named Zebedee. You know his name. It puts flesh on this story makes it far more personal. In order to follow Jesus, they had, to, they had to go a different direction than their father. That's not to say the father rejected Jesus. It's just to follow, they had to make Jesus their focus above their father. For so many people, the, the idea of leaving Jesus, or excuse me, of following Jesus and leaving everything behind is, is an absurd idea. I think one of the reasons it's such an absurd idea is because we don't think of Jesus in the right way. We don't think of Jesus as a king to be followed, but as a courier who should be bringing gifts. Like he's some sort of cosmic Ed McMahon with a publisher clearinghouse prize check for you at the door. Can we make Ed McMahon references and be relevant as a church? I don't know, but I'm going to try it, see what happens. So we think of Jesus, Jesus has come, yay, and now he's going to give me everything that I want. But that's not discipleship. That's not the kind of king Jesus is, not some cosmic butler. He's the king of all creation. And when that king comes and calls you by name to follow him, what do you do? Did the disciples make a mistake by leaving behind nets to follow Jesus? 
Would their lives have been better if they had stayed in those boats that day rather than walking with Jesus? I think the testimony of their lives would tell us that they don't regret a single moment they spent with Jesus. So when the call of Christ comes to your life, what will your answer be? Cody, are you telling me then that if, if I say yes to Jesus, then I've got to quit my job and I've got to move out of my house and I've got to go? No, that's not what I'm saying. You always go to these hypothetical extremes. I don't know why you do that. And I wish you would stop. That's not at all what I'm saying. But answering the call of Jesus means that he has ultimate authority in every area of our lives. So if believing the gospel and walking with Jesus means I've got to risk some relationships, then brother and sister, Christ is worth it and he loves the people that are represented there. But we've got to follow Jesus. If Jesus says to you, love your neighbor as yourself, then you do it. If he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you do it. If, if he tells you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, then brother, you do it. And sister, if he says, uh, submit to your husband as to the Lord, then you do it. We put the word of Christ before us in everything. And why would we do that? To our culture, it seems so obtuse, so old-fashioned and fundamental. Why would we do such a thing? Here's why. Because the one who calls is, according to verse 1, the Christ. And in verse 1, the Son of God. In verse 3, the Lord. In verse 7, the Mighty One. In verse 7, the Worthy One. In verse 8, the One who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, the Spirit-anointed One. Verse 11, the Beloved Son. Verse 11, the One who pleases God. In verse 14, the One who embodies the kingdom of God before us. That's why the disciples say yes, and that's why we would say yes. Because of who He is. And you have so much more information than these four disciples did on this day. Because you know how the Gospel of Mark ends, that this Messiah lays down his life in your place. He, he's held accountable for your sin. He dies your death. And three days later, risen from the dead, reigns evermore, ascended to the Father, You've got all of that in view and Jesus calls you by name and he says, follow me. What will you do? When the call of Christ comes to your heart, what will you do? And for those of you who have already said yes, you know that discipleship is a, a, a continual formation. Right? These brothers don't take step one into perfect discipleship. Far from it. What we'll find in the Gospel of Mark is that this is just about the only place they get anything right. Choosing to follow Jesus immediately, that's right. Everything else that follows, a little sloppy. So how well are you following? How well have you responded to the call of Christ? How can you evaluate your life and know how is my discipleship progressing? There's any number of measurements we might use, but here's a simple one even just from the text. 
disciples look like their master. And how is Jesus described in verse 14? He came proclaiming the kingdom of God. Brother, sister, how do you proclaim the kingdom of God? Who are you sharing the good news with? Who do you love enough to point towards Jesus? Who are you intentionally pointing towards the cross for the sake of their salvation? Who are you praying for? Are you proclaiming the kingdom in your words, in your life? That's one measurement tool and an important measurement tool. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite little books, it's, it's a prayer diary. It's called, it's called A Diary of Private Prayer. It's by a guy named John Bailey. One of his prayers, a line that stuck with me is this. He says, um, so it's written prayers for morning and evening, space to journal. In, in this one particular prayer, in the morning, he prays, God, make of me a crisis man, that upon meeting Christ in me, people would make a decision. Do I live my life as a crisis woman, crisis man, where the kingdom of God is manifest in my speech, in my life? That's what disciples do. So, there's a lot packed into these two scenes, these very short verses. And here's what Mark has given us this morning. Jesus has broken into this world. He's come to our lives. He's declared the kingdom of God is near, and he has called us to follow him as his disciples. That line, the kingdom is near, here's a weird thing about it. It can be good news. It can be bad news. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is preparing a large group of his followers to go out in ministry. And he gives them these instructions. He says, if you come into a town and they welcome you, then say to them, the kingdom of God is near. If you come to a town and they reject you, then wipe the dust off of your feet and say to them, the kingdom of God is near. It is the same line to both communities. Because to one, it is a word of hope and promise, fulfillment, blessing, gospel. And to the other, it is a warning. It is a woe. Judgment is coming. On those who reject the king and his kingdom. The same line has two very different meanings depending on the way we receive it and respond to it. My question to you today is, how does the news of the kingdom and the call of Christ land on you? How do you respond to Christ's call? It might be that you have for some time been considering the claims of Jesus and, and considering what Christianity has to say about what life is like and and, and, and how we're to live. Uh, I want you to feel the urgency in the words of Jesus. Twice the, the, the word immediately shows up in this passage. Immediately he calls, immediately they follow. There's urgency in the proclamation of the kingdom. And here's why, because Jesus loves you this much. He laid down his life. 
And you don't want to miss a single day of your life with him. This is the pivotal moment. This is the crisis time. This is the moment for you to hear who Jesus is and to say yes. As a follower of Jesus, this passage speaks to us in so many ways. Hope, encouragement, strength, challenge, another call to repentance, to be like our Savior, to be like him in word and in deed. We recognize that God calls broken people like us to be a part of his work on this earth. You'll carry the kingdom of God with you and you will establish it wherever you tell the story of Jesus and you tell of everything that he's done for you. He makes you into a kingdom proclaimer. Brothers and sisters, the time is fulfilled. Let us repent, believe, and follow the king in his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father God, I'm struck by the fact that in the story we've read today, you're the active agent. No one beckoned you to come. No one asked you to do this thing. None of these four guys had their eyes on the horizon waiting for their call. You in grace, in mercy, in love have acted on behalf of your people and your name is to be praised because of it. Father, Holy Spirit, would you awaken faith in my friends this morning that don't know you? Let them think about the implications of the coming of Christ on them. Father, I pray that they would hear clearly your voice calling them and they would say yes and follow. For all of us, help us in in our repentance, in our ongoing repentance. Holy Spirit, continue to convict us of sin and shape us to look more and more like the one who saved us. And would you put your word in our mouth with boldness and clarity that we would follow in the way of our master, proclaiming the glorious kingdom, that this world would be set right and lives would be rescued from wrath, and your name would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.